You say, can we reach sinless perfection in this life? No. But if you're a growing Christian, your life will progressively change. But if you say you have no sin, you're calling God a liar and his word is not in you. But the standard is holiness. And that's what a real saving encounter with the grace of God does to you. Listen to these words as Paul writes in Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Please note, it does not say that all men will be saved, but salvation is available for all men. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three and the conclusion of Dr. Brogy's sermon entitled, Avoiding Moral Failure. Pastor Carl has addressed the decline of morality in today's culture and how being careless or complacent in our walk with the Lord has the potential for us to become callous towards sin in our lives. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. We often say that secret sin is open scandal in heaven, and indeed it is. And while men can hide their sin from men, sooner or later it will be found out. Be sure of this, your sin will find you out either on this earth or in heaven. Now, the truth of the matter is we don't know exactly what he wrote, but the Holy Spirit does record the reaction of those who read down what Jesus wrote, which speaks volumes. Look at verse 7. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, again, when capital punishment was to be unfolded, as Leviticus and Deuteronomy both teach, the person who made the accusation or the two or three witnesses that made the accusation, the Scripture dictated they had to be the first to throw the stone. So if you're going to come and lay some charge so that the whole community can stone this person to death, you have to initiate, and the community will follow. Now, please notice Jesus did not say, let him who has never sinned cast the first stone. Otherwise, what Moses wrote would not be allowed because we're all sinners. So again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. I just couldn't bring myself to throwing it away, but back in my office, I have an envelope, and in it was a rock. And this Christian counselor mailed me a rock. And he was mad at me because I suggested to a couple couples, you don't need to go to him. Why not, Pastor? Well, he's on his third marriage, and right now he's living in an adulterous relationship with a woman that he sings with in the choir every week. And of course, that church could care less. They were as liberal and still are liberal. So he mails me a rock. He was without sin, let him cast the first stone. Well, Jesus is not saying he that has never sinned cast the first stone. And that's how this verse is often used, where people can say, you know, like, judge not lest you be judged. No, this dovetails with what Jesus already taught in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 3, towards the start of his ministry. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
he is clearly not requiring perfection because there could be no judgment at all. What he is requiring is there could not be hypocritical judgment. And so Jesus has already said, as I noted in John 7, 24, judge, it's a command, judge with righteous judgment. He is forbidding judgment with hypocrisy. So he's not asking that sinless men judge because there's only one sinless person who ever walked on the earth. Otherwise, the judicial benches would be empty, and yet God requires judgment. He's saying, he who is free from this particular sin, let him be the first to cast the stone against her. Otherwise, you are a hypocrite. What is he doing? He is implicating them in the sin. Hey, look, it was probably a setup, no doubt. If it were not a setup, then where was the man? And if they set this up, then they are equally guilty of adultery because they're not promoting holiness, they're promoting, indulging, encouraging sin. Not to mention an act or thought they may have already committed it. Look at verse 8. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Maybe this time in his omniscience, he wrote the name of the man who was caught in the very end. How did he know that? That would imply that the adulterous man was also guilty, and they were as well. Now look at verse 9. When they heard it, he's writing, big crowd, and they're reading what he's writing. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, probably because they're wiser, probably because they got more sin behind their name. They're the first to leave, and he was left alone, and the woman was there in the center of the court. When they heard it, uh, the King James trying to bring out the nuance of the word here to hear with conviction because it was convicting. Whatever it, he said, it was very convicting. One by one, beginning with the older ones, they leave. Eventually, even the younger ones leave. And the only ones who are left is the original crowd to whom he is teaching and this woman who's plunged right before the Lord Jesus Christ. What has he done? He's unmasked their hypocrisy. They come to shame Jesus. They leave in shame. And so here's this woman in the center of the court before the Lord Jesus, never two more people different. She's been living a lifestyle of sin. He's absolutely sinless. So what does he do? He builds a bridge between his sinless perfection to this sinner. And that's what he's done to all of us who've met him. He builds a bridge, a bridge made out of grace to show us how God. Look at verse 10. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? By the way, this might sound disrespectful. Hey, woman, you know, like a New York cabbie, woman. <laughs> but that's not the nuance of the Hebrew idiom. It's difficult maybe to translate into English. Maybe the best example I could think of would be when my sons would say, ma'am, very respectfully to their mother. 
And of course, you could, I remember being in the Ukraine and we're going into this village to witness to people, people who had never heard, some of them, the name of the Lord Jesus. And we're passing out glasses because under communism, they, they had no eyeglasses for 70 years. The healthcare stunk. That's what socialism, that's what communism does. It unravels a culture. You want socialism? Go look at what it was like in countries that have lived with it. So, you know, we had a vacation Bible school, and we said to the kids, hey, you got old glasses, talk to your neighbors, and we collected like two trunks of glasses. My dad was an ophthalmologist, I said, dad, is there anything wrong if people just try on different glasses? No, he said, they got one, I remember this 91-year-old woman, she put on a set of glasses, and she had a big smile come across her face, because she hadn't seen clearly in decades. So we're going through the uh, village, this is 1999, and my uh, translator says, babushka. I said, what does babushka mean? He said, uh, I said, I know we have those little wooden babushkas. Well, what does it mean? He said, old woman. I said, you're calling her old woman? He said, that's actually a term of respect. And that's the nuance here. That's why Jesus said from the cross to Mary, woman. I mean, John, behold your son. Um, and he refers to his, his mother as as woman. So it's not a put down. Woman, behold your son. Jesus said, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Now, please note, he does not say she is not guilty. He knows she is guilty. And the word condemn is a verb that literally means to bring down. And it's a very picturesque word because when you condemn someone and you use this verb, you would take the stone above your head and you'd bring it down on the people. The first, the witnesses, and everybody would follow. And you rocked them to death. Did no one condemn you? Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? No, they left. Because they were guilty. So she stands face to face with God incarnate. She said, no one, Lord, Please note, she never denies her guilt. She never hides her guilt. She never makes excuses for her guilt. And by the way, she does not give the typical response, no one rabbi, but no one Lord. See, that would have been the typical response, no one rabbi, because that's how you referred to men teaching in the temple or on the steps there outside going up to the temple. But she had put some truth together, this Jewish woman. Maybe she put together Isaiah 53 in her mind, and she realized this is the one whom the Scriptures wrote of who would come and die for our sin, be pierced through for our iniquity. And she calls him Kurios, Lord. Paul says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Kurios, Lord you shall be saved. When she said, no one, Lord, she was putting him on the throne of her heart. You say, well, wait a minute. How could Jesus say, neither do I condemn you? I do not condemn you either. Now, by the way, this is very different from the scribes and the Pharisees. They have an entirely different mindset over this woman. She is a pawn. Jesus sees her as a person made in the image of God. All they could see is her past. All the Lord Jesus can do is see a new future, go and sin no more. 
They only want a rocker. He wants to save her. Now, how could he do this? How can he ignore the Mosaic law? Now, wait a minute. Jesus said, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill it. So if Jesus comes to fulfill the law, how is it that he can dictate, no, neither do I condemn you? He is perfectly fulfilling it on this day. Why? Because again, Deuteronomy 17 reads, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. There's not two witnesses, much less three. He's not condoning her sin at all. He is clear that she has sinned. That's why he says, go and sin no more. Well, how can he remain just and holy as the incarnate Son of God and forgive this woman because he's putting the cross between her and her sin? Put down on the margin next to this verse, Romans 8 and verse 1. Romans 8, verse 1. We studied it about a month ago. Let me refresh your memory. Romans 8, 1. There is there there is there, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This verse is saying if you are in Christ, and that's the simplest definition of a Christian in the New Testament, God no longer condemns you. If you are outside of Christ, you can expect nothing but condemnation. What was this woman doing? She had come to faith. She was fulfilling what Paul mentions in Romans 4, 4 and 5, when he looks at two Old Testament characters, Abraham and David, to show that God has always had one way in all of human time to save people. You know the verse, now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but what is due. You work hard at the end of the week, your paycheck is not given to you by your employer as a favor, as a gift, literally. No, it's due. It's an obligation. They owe it to you. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. That person's faith is reckoned, credited as righteousness. Who does God declare, impute righteousness to? The one who doesn't work. You try to work for your salvation, you're saying you can save yourself, that you can be good enough. That's the Pharisees and the scribes. No, he justifies the ungodly person. And we are all ungodly in the sight of God Almighty. She doesn't make excuses for her adultery. She sees herself as an ungodly woman. And she puts him on the throne of her heart, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. He cannot possibly say that unless she has been justified. Because there is no condemnation only for those who are in Christ Jesus. Neither can he say, go and sin no more. Because as you read the rest of the chapter, he's going to deal with people who are outside of the Messiah, who have an intellectual faith, who are only there to learn, but they don't want to respond. And he says, your father is that of the devil, and the one who sins is a slave to sin. There's no freedom. You say, wait a minute, Jesus hadn't died yet. No, he's about six months away from dying on that cross. But listen, if the cross is good for us who live 2,000 years later, it was good for this woman who's six months away from having it in time and space paid for. Go and sin less? No, that's not what he says. 
go and just sin to a respectable level. Go and sin no more. You say, can we reach sinless perfection in this life? No. But if you're a growing Christian, your life will progressively change. But if you say you have no sin, you're calling God a liar and his word is not in you. But the standard is holiness. And that's what a real saving encounter with the grace of God does to you. Listen to these words as Paul writes in Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Please note, it does not say that all men will be saved, but salvation is available for all men. There's a universal need, and so there's a universal provision that has been made. Understand, Christ didn't die for some select few, only for the elect. He died and shed his blood for the whole world. The world means world. We can say it in theological terms that the grace of God is sufficient to save anyone, but is only efficient for you when you come by faith. So the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Titus 2.11 teaches that salvation is offered to all men, but to whom does it instruct? Just us. Just those of us who have called upon Jesus in faith and Christ can read her heart, and so he can say to her, go and sin no more. Why? Because she has a new life, a new relationship. And so much like Jesus said earlier, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. He came to save her. He came to forgive her, not to condemn her. And Paul will also say, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. His old life has passed away. Everything has become brand new. That's what happens. I don't condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. As best we can tell, most people left that day, at least the scribes and the Pharisees, with a guilty conscience. She left forgiven with joy in her heart. Now, how are we going to apply this? Let me suggest some applications as we close off our time. Number one, when we deal with people in sin, we must go with absolute humility. When we deal with people in sin, we need to go with absolute humil humility. Uh, we discussed this just recently from Galatians 6 and verse 1. Brethren, even if a man is caught entangled in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. How? In a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Maybe you know a fellow believer who's in the wrong. You know they're being immoral, that they are committing the kind of sin that warrants. Not all sin warrants, obviously, discipline, or we'd have discipline 24-7 because we're all sinners. But some sin does. Maybe you know such a person. You know, say, hey, let's pray for so-and-so. That's prayer gossip. You go and confront the brother in private. And if he doesn't listen, you take two or three, and it's qualified as spiritual people. That is spirit-filled people, people with a clean heart, people who are not living in hypocrisy. You don't go to club them. You go in a spirit of gentleness, and you go with the attitude, lest I too be tempted. 
It's what Jesus said in Matthew 7, and why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not look at the log in your own eye? We go in a spirit of gentleness. We don't go thinking this could never happen to me. And as I said recently, when you say that, when that's the spirit in your heart, you're tempting the devil to tempt you. So we deal with people, we go in absolute humility. Secondly, I learned from this passage, when God convicts us of our sin, it will either drive us to Christ or away from Christ. It drives us either to Christ or away from Christ. As these these people are confronted, they're convicted. By the way, conviction is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. If I set my hand on a hot burner, it's a good thing I still have functioning nerves. I don't in part of this hand, but I do in this hand. I could put this hand on a burner, and it could cook my finger, and I wouldn't know it. But if I put this hand, it's a good thing. It tells me there's something wrong. And it's a good thing when you are under conviction because it tells you that something is spiritually wrong. And unfortunately, these men are convicted in their consciences, but they don't respond. And people tend to go to one of two extremes. They either flee towards Christ, they run to Him, or they run away from Him. Look, we got a a national preacher who preaches the largest church in America, and he says he doesn't speak about sin. Because people have so much stuff already that's bad in their life, he doesn't want to talk about sin. That's what false teachers do. These scribes and these Pharisees, they're convicted to the heart. They walked away one by one by one. But what do they do? They go out and plot how they're going to take him down next. Third, God's forgiveness, when rightly understood, serves as a motivation to holy living. When forgiveness is really understood, it serves as a motivation to holy living. And so after the Lord grants this woman forgiveness, no condemnation, He says, from now on, go and sin no more. Stop that kind of living. And that's what grace does. When my son Jeremy was eight years old, he said to me one day, he said, Daddy, do you think that some people will think, well, now that I'm saved and salvation is forever and I can never lose salvation, do you think some people will reason, well, now that I'm saved, I guess I can go and just sin and it won't matter? And I said to him, Jeremy, it's kind of like this. If I communicate to you that I love you and you can't do anything to make me love you more and you can't do anything to make me love you any less, I just love you no matter what, does that motivate you to obey me or disobey me? He said to obey you. Well, that's what grace does. You're in Christ. You have been credited with the righteousness of God in Christ. You can't do anything to improve that status. John 17 says the Father loves you as much as He loves the Son. You can't do anything to make yourself more pleasing or displeasing. You are righteous in Christ, a saint by calling. And when you understand that kind of grace, it instructs you to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live holy. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Certainly, as Titus 1.16 indicates, there are people who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. Hey, there's coming a day, man, 
were vast multitudes of people who preached in his name, who did miracles in his name, who cast out demons in his name. He goes for the most dramatic conversion you can picture. You say, man, he's a spirit-filled person. Because an unbeliever can do all three of those. But by their deeds they deny him. Away from me, you who practice iniquity. You say, well, pastor, I've never committed adultery. I'm not like this woman. I think everything's fine. You've got a different problem. You're identifying with the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus said, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to save, quote, unquote, the righteous people who think they're righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. You're identifying with the scribes and the Pharisees. You have a different sin. It's called self-righteousness. You say, Pastor Carl, I have so messed up and soiled my life. I'm just buried in shame and guilt. Then you can identify with this woman. It's a trustworthy statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. See, there are some people who think they are too bad to be saved, and they never get saved because they don't take God at His word. And then there are those who think they're too good to be saved. And they never get saved because they do not see what God says about them, that we all fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not even one. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you this morning for this portion of Scripture that you put in your Bible to teach us more about the Lord Jesus and what he is like. I know, Father, there's someone listening today somewhere in the world, some state, some foreign country, and they've tuned into this broadcast, maybe in this auditorium, maybe in one of our campuses, and they feel like the woman caught in adultery. Thank you that though our sins be like crimson, they can be as white as wool. That whosoever, anyone who will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Help someone, our Father, on the basis of what Jesus did on his cross. That he didn't die for some or most, but all of our sin. And he proved his sinlessness and his ability to pay when you raised him from the dead. Help them to call upon him. Help them to say, Lord Jesus, save me. For you promised and you cannot lie that whoever will call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Our Father, may we never forget what you saved us from. May we always be ready to make a defense for the hope that is within us. Good news is for sharing. Help us to be faithful in this new week to reach out to people in our world that is becoming faster and faster covered over in evil. May we be faithful stewards of the gospel, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Moral purity is often lost with the choices that we make with our own eyes. And we must also remember that God can forgive sin, but he does not erase the laws of sowing and reaping. If you enjoyed today's study, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets 
or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program Avoiding Moral Failure. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.